You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome to Channel 33, a new podcast series presented by Soul. I'm your host, Yusra Al-Baqir. The visionary singer, rapper, activist, and educator Maimouna Youssef, also known as Mumu Fresh, is my guest on this week's show. A Baltimore native of African-American, Choctaw, Creek, and Cherokee roots, her mixed heritage is key to the lens she brings to her work and influences. Maimouna's artistry is bent towards liberation and raising consciousness. If you want to get a sense of her magic, I'd urge you to watch her 2019 BET Black Girls Rock performance to her track, Say My Name, in dedication to Sandra Bland, whose 2015 death led to protests worldwide. You might also have spotted her viral NPR performances, both rousing fusions of prayer, prose, and stirring vocals speaking to themes spanning romantic love, history, social change, and much more. A Grammy-nominated artist, she's performed and collaborated with an impressive roll call of artists, including Lauren Hill, Erica Badu, Jill Scott, The Roots, and Salam Remy. Her latest album, Queen of Soul, released a few weeks ago, blends genres including jazz, gospel, hip-hop, and explores faith, the legacy of slavery, and healing. Maimouna has forged a sustainable path as an independent artist. Her journey to date has been a consistent mix of trusting her voice, not allowing industry conventions to shape her artistry, and rejecting the myth of the struggling musician. I loved our interview, particularly her sharing her experience of remaining authentic and true to herself as a black woman. One thing that I really love when I listen to your music is just the range and the diversity of your sound. And for me, it feels like that is not just a reflection of your interest, but also of your background and the multiplicity of perspective that you carry into your craft and into your music. What was it like for you growing up as a kid and and how did your Native American background and your African-American background expose you to different forms of music and different forms of expression? Yeah, I was going to tell people if you're used to hearing a particular sound, if you're used to labels that want to put you in certain categories to sell you and they like to separate genres, you know, my music might be, you know, kind of confusing for them, but it's not a stretch for me because it is an actual reflection of what my childhood was like. My grandmother would teach me Native American songs and like old school gospel. And my mother, she was in an Afro jazz band, so I'd learn like songs by Leta and Bulu and Maria Makeba and Yuma Sakela and Fela and then also Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn, Eddie Jefferson. That was just my norm. I would go from style to style and I didn't even look at them as different genres. It was just sounds that I enjoyed, you know, and I would mimic these different sounds and select different ones depending on the mood that I wanted to feel. And my environment was very multicultural. You know, my, my brother, his father is Ethiopian, so I grew up around his family. And also I have a Nigerian family. And that was what life was for me. So early on, I knew my music would appeal more to like a world market. It's taken America a while to embrace the world, you know, kind of get outside of their own perspective. I'm happy to see that is changing a lot. The American market has become more global in terms of uh, the influences 
And uh, music in general, I think is just becoming more expansive and genre bending. But the styles of music, even amongst American music, right? Music that comes from slave fields and field hollers, spirituals, songs that are about resistance and resilience that were created by Africans you know, brought to America during the slave trade. And from that came the blues and ragtime, jazz, you know, gospel, R&B, soul, rock and roll, um, hip hop, funk, you know, all those things came from that one experience. You know, they weren't here prior to, to, to the slave trade. They didn't exist anywhere. This particular experience in America birthed these different sounds and you can't really separate the sound from the experience that created it. Yeah. I mean, because I think Native American culture and African American culture are very similar in that sense, right? That music is a form of healing and a form of, it's, it's spiritual, deeply spiritual. And so for you, when did you kind of start to see the, the division in that? Because music is seen as entertainment, but really that's never what it was for you or never how you were exposed to it. It wasn't until I got into the music industry when I started recording songs and we got like an artist development deal and, you know, I started having meetings with labels. It was very disheartening for me. It was such a culture shock because I was also homeschooled. So I didn't really grow up a part of like mainstream American culture at all. You know, my environment was very much a subculture. And it was a lot of us, we were all Pan-Africanists, you know, indigenous, traditionalist, homeschool, but we lived very separate from American ideals. I mean, we're the first Americans, we're the true Americans, but in terms of what American pop culture is, that didn't exist in my house. We didn't have a television in my house. You know, we didn't have radios in my house. Like there was definitely music, but it was what my mother allowed to be our influence. It was like, you know, you're not gonna be of the world. The world can't be in my house. This is a, a, you know, a sacred place. And so any of that music that is not for the betterment of your higher self and your higher purpose, that can't be in my home. So a lot of my friends, especially my friends now, like, you know, they can't really control what their kids are listening to because it's so easy to just get anything. And a lot of the music is really destructive. I'm lucky to have such a good relationship with my son and we share a lot of the same music tastes. So I'm happy. I don't really have to worry about that. So... It wasn't until I got into the music business that I realized like, this is how y'all live? Like, this is what you think about music? Like, why? It was, it was very difficult for me. I always felt like I never fit in because I couldn't really come to their side and they wouldn't come to my side. I was like, I don't know how to live in this world, you know, because to me, they desecrate everything that's sacred. Yeah, yeah. And how was it for you when you went to Duke Ellington School of the Arts because you were homeschooled and then you were in a an arts program and a very rare arts program of a you know, US public school concentrating on, on the arts. So was there a shift or was it just a very smooth transition? No, it was definitely a shift. Yeah, I've never been to public school before. I mean, I love Duke and I think Duke is one of the best public schools there are, but it's still a part of the public school system. And in terms of how public schools look at learning is so strange to me. Because to me, learning is like expansive and it's cohesive and it includes like, you know, when I was homeschooled, I could say to my mother for language arts, I want to study a RZA verse from the Wu-Tang Clan. And I would like write all of his verses down then like take each word I didn't understand, write the definition, parts of speech, use it in a sentence and then freestyle, you know, with the whole verse. And that could be my language arts class, you know, and then we could have a separate conversation about what I learned and 
it just made sense. Like it was, it was relative to everything. I could tie it into everything. And it made me really, really enjoy learning. Like I love to learn. I was a straight A student. I mean, I still do love to learn, but I didn't realize that in, when you get to public school, um, you know, you can only really learn what they have set up for that day. You can't discuss it, cross-reference it, bring in new material, you know, have a, you can't do that. It's like, listen, we have 30 minutes. This is what I need you to remember for this test. Do not ask me any other questions if it doesn't have to do with these 10 questions. Yeah, very rigid. Very, very rigid. And it, you know, it was so disheartening for me but that is the system and it, you know it's bureaucracy more than it is about learning and so you are not allowed to be an analytical thinker and for me that's ex that's all i was you know so i was just breaking free i was just you know fighting back <laughs> against the system like no that's not how i want to learn whose decision was it for you to go to duke i asked my mother at that time i think it was a little bit more obscure uh in terms of how to get to college from homeschool like now it's a straight line it's very easy to get to to a good college from homeschool but no one was really clear at that point we were like the only people of color homeschooling in an inner city of baltimore there just wasn't a lot of support for how to have higher learning from homeschool so i wanted to go to a public school so i could get to a good college and I wanted to go to art school because I was already gigging by that point, but I wanted to really hone in on my craft because I actually was in the writer's department. My teachers were incredible and they really helped me look at myself as a songwriter. I had written songs before like raps and stuff, but not in the structure. Like I understand literature in a different way because of my teachers there. So I mainly hung out with my teachers during the, during lunch breaks and any kind of time for socializing, having deep conversations about different revolutions and freedom fighters. And Elaine Brown actually came to my school. One of my teachers suggested I read her book. You know, she was in the Black Panther Party. And so I got to meet her and just ask her all these questions about Huey P. Newton. I was like so intrigued by the Black Panther Party. And so that's the kind of stuff that I did on my lunch break. I wasn't like hanging around you know, smoking, chilling. I would freestyle some time with them, but most of the time I was like on a mission. What was the end game for you at that point, do you think? I knew I wanted to start a band. I wanted to tour. I was actually looking into becoming an anthropologist. Like I was thinking I would do anthropology mainly and then do like music on the side, or I'd use my anthropology to inform some of my work. But you know, the music industry is like, hmm. being too smart is like a setback. Hmm in the music industry. <laughs> you see too much, you see too much, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I've been told that a lot. Like, you're too smart, you're too talented, you gotta dumb it down, you can't be successful unless you dumb it down. So I had a lot of hard lessons to learn, in particular about writing for black artists, you know, that in particular, they don't want black artists to think, or they'll say black people don't want to think. But you could write for like, you know, an alternative rock group and kind of do some more clever, interesting, things but it's harder to write for black people because we're not allowed to think you know when did you realize that that was how black artists were kind of boxed in when did you realize oh they don't want us to think they don't want us to to be conscious and aware early i'll sit with the label execs and pick their brains and ask them questions and i started to put it together like oh this is the same thing it's the same bureaucracy you know like the same way in school that you're not allowed to think they don't want to build analytical thinkers it's the same way through music the whole system is is like just stay quiet and consume so those are just things that i noticed and i guess a, a little disillusion my mother always says that i, I used to <laughs> in the beginning you know i would just sit and cry and say i don't think i'm right for this world <laughs> you decided to stay independent as an artist 
I mean, what fed into that decision and how do you feel like that decision gave you more freedom to, to evolve and express yourself? The first thing is that my music was very political, right? I grew up a Pan-Africanist, very aware of social injustices. And, you know, for the industry, everything has a timing and a trend. Like, had I first signed a deal during this time period, they probably would allow me to say something social or political. But at that time, it was like, nope, that's not the trend, so you can't do it. So that wasn't exciting for me. And then also as a woman, I couldn't find a way to stay on a mainstream label and keep my clothes on. And it was just stressful for me because what they would say is not exploitation would completely be exploitation to me. But they would try to convince me that it wasn't that bad. And I, we just didn't have the same moral compass. You kind of can't tell me what is okay for me just because it's okay for you. There's way more space in the music industry for women now to have to keep their clothes on if that's what they choose to. But you should have a choice. You get what I'm saying? You should have a choice. And the amount of pressure that's put on women to be naked to me says you don't have a choice, you know, and that's just not okay. Like I should be able to keep my clothes on without losing money or not being able to feed my family. And that, that brings me back to what you said about sanctity, you know, your mom preserving the sanctity of your home. Do you feel like by staying independent, you've preserved the sanctity of your craft and of your body and yourself? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it comes at a cost. My road has been so much harder, you know? But I had that, that's what I traded and that was worth it for me. And now again, independent is different now. When I was first independent, I was selling CDs on a bus stop on my book bag, <laughs> you know, masterpiece style. And, but that's how committed I was. I was committed to being able to keep my ideas and my ideology and my sound pure. Cause it wasn't just my writing and it wasn't just my body. It was also the frequency of the music I was creating. It was not compatible with the nightclubs. It wasn't compatible with the strip club. And that's the music that plays on the radio. So if they're trying to figure out how to program you, where to put you in between two other artists and the frequency is so completely different, it's never gonna match up, you know? So I was a standalone artist, so I, I stood alone. <laughs> and, you know, and, and tried to align with an audience that was looking for an artist like me. You know, and it may not be everybody, but you'll find your tribe, you know, the more you project that energy, they'll, they'll respond to that. And, and that's what I saw happen. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that there are so many changes in the world that have happened in the past, like three to five years that have like completely revolutionized independent music and have made it so much more accepting of women, of mothers, of diversity amongst women. We're not monolithic, you know, like even black women are completely not monolithic we are so 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 diverse and so now there's like space for so many different perspectives like i used to always have to i was always told to bite my tongue and well don't say too don't make sure it's not too black make sure it's not too spiritual make sure it's not too spooky make you know and i was always told in this line of not offending people's i don't know sensibilities to be able to get booked on certain events and now it's like say whatever you're feeling i'm like oh wow okay you sure <laughs> have <laughs> you, you heard my words <laughs> yeah because i'm just like you know i come from a mother who does not hold her tongue at all she speaks truth because she doesn't need anyone to agree with her to speak the truth you'll find out in time you know and that's a hard thing for artists artists are very afraid to say the wrong thing step on the wrong toes offend the wrong corporation lose their sponsorship lose their fan base they hardly ever have the opportunity to just be authentic. 
Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the rampant misogynoir we're seeing today, like the sexism and racism that black women face in the music industry, but to be honest, everywhere, you know, it feels like it gets better, but it's still, we are still told, stay in your lane, stay in your box. How do you feel about that? I think it's gotten a lot better because not only were we told stay in our box before, we were also told by men and we were also told by women who were gatekeepers for men. I don't think there's enough attention given to the fact that women can also be misogynist and they can uphold sexism the way, yeah, other black people can also uphold white supremacy. You know, they can be those gatekeepers and overseers to make sure the, the field, field ones of us don't get out of line. So I think that it's always been that way. I think it's a lot better now because we can actually call it out for what it is without being called crazy. You know, like I've, I have spoken out against sexism in particular that was directed towards me in a very derogatory way. And I've lost my opportunity. The other person didn't, didn't lose the opportunity. I lost my opportunity because I was causing trouble because I, I was telling this person, you can't violate me like that. And, and it, it became, I was a troublemaker just by protecting myself. So I just think that it's easier to call that stuff out and people will agree with you. You'll get people to rally behind you. And that was not the case before. You couldn't, especially in the music business, you better not say anything about anything or you're blackballed, you're out of here. And so you have to choose between your livelihood and your self-respect. And it's just, you know, it's really unfortunate. Um, so I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm grateful to see things changing. I'm grateful to see there being a level of, you know, eggshell walking <laughs> because I also think a lot of guys didn't know when they were being sexist because it was so... Normalized. Yes, it was just normal. And if you said something about it, it's like, oh, you're being sensitive. Okay, well, I have the right to be sensitive about how I'm treated and how I'm talked to. People are having to relearn what's okay, what's acceptable. And, and, and it changes because one thing may be acceptable to some person and not acceptable to another. So I think it's opening up dialogue. Uh, a lot of my guy friends who are in high positions on the corporate side of music, they'll call me and ask me, hey, look, this happened today. Do you think I'm being sexist? Because they don't know. If they've never been on the other side, they just, they don't know. And so I'm glad to have the conversations because I'm, you know, I can be pretty objective about it. Cause I have lots of brothers, you know, who say all types of sexist things sometimes, you know, and I have to check them like, yo, that's not okay. If you wouldn't let someone say it to me, you can't say it to her. I, I guess it's like raising our collective sensitivity to these things, because even within, even for me growing up in a Muslim, you know, Afro Arab household, there's a lot that I have to unlearn as well. And, and it's not thinking, oh yeah, I'm, I'm black. So I'm always the oppressed. I cannot oppress, you know? But I mean, for you, you are Grammy nominated. You are, a, you know, musical ambassador for the U.S. You are working, you know, you've worked within institutions that are very prestigious. What do you think about these awards and accolades in terms of the way that the bar is set for us? And, and how can we work within those systems, but also create our own bars and our own awards and our own accolades? Yeah, I'm grateful for the recognition. I, I think it's, also, it's always a, a fine line you have to walk because when you don't control why you're being recognized, how, how you're being recognized, who you're being recognized by, if that becomes your barometer for how you value yourself, that's a, a key to having a miserable life. 
because again, it it, go, it it becomes if I don't dance when you say dance, if I don't behave, you know, in a way that you know your sponsors enjoy, then you get to take something away from me. And so, in my path to being an authentic person, uh, Wayne Dyer says this: you must be independent of the good opinions of others if you wish to be self-realized. And that really is the truth. And that's an everyday journey because I think the natural nature even of a child is to be validated. You know, you look to your parents, you do something, say, did I do a good job? You know, but it's hard when you look to a system that really doesn't mean you well and say, hey, did I do a good job? You know, and, and expect them to congratulate you for, you know, freeing people's minds. Like that kind of goes against what how they need people to behave in order to keep them consumers. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. Sometimes the, the, the cards line up. Sometimes things add up and you're able to receive the recognition while being authentic. It normally doesn't happen that way, but sometimes it does. And so I'm grateful when it does. Like when I did this clip on NPR that went viral, I had no idea that that was going to go viral. I didn't plan for it. I just was having an emotional morning and decided to just be honest about it. And the outpour of people reaching out to me, crying, just like really feeling renewed and restored and confirmed affirmed by the rap verse just 16 bars it was mind-blowing to me and i was super super grateful to god because i could lift someone up and someone else up you know another group up in that moment not just women i loved how many men reached out to me and said i never thought about it like that like thank you that was super eye-opening it's changed my whole relationship with my wife i can't even think of a better more affirming you know experience than that so I'm grateful when those things happen, but I really try my best not to judge my own value off of whether they happen or not, you know, because that's just, I mean, that's its own cage. It's its own prison, you know? So I, I just, I do the work and I act in every moment I'm asking myself, am I being authentic? You know, if, when I leave this behind, will, will my spirit be proud of the work that I've done? And if, and if the answer is yes, then that's what it is. And I, I keep my head down and I do the work and you know, study, study my catalog when I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you feel like we can do that kind of like hold space for ourselves and our own authenticity, but also like wake people up to our oneness and like our unity, because it's, it's really, I think people really, I think struggle with individuality versus mm -hmm. the collective and they want to, they want to be themselves and they want to feel like I'm my own person that they often forget that to, to, to share in, in what makes us all one? Like how, how did that work for you? Well, I kind of think that the more honest you are, you'll find that people will find connectivity to it just because, you know, there is something human about hurt and about love and about joy and about, you know, laughter you know, and the more you sit in that thing that makes you human, people are going to connect. When I opened my tiny desk with a, a Lakota song and I told the story of my own ancestry and, and myself uh, coming from that line, I didn't think I didn't think anyone would necessarily relate to it. Like I had not included a lot of native music in my set prior to that. I would do native shows for native people and do traditional songs in that particular arena. And then when I did nightclubs i would do rap for rap communities and maybe i was in jazz clubs now you're catering to different communities yeah and then i i just decided i didn't want to do that anymore i just want to be me holy and either you like it or you don't and i just don't have space to care anymore and so 
that day was like the first time I decided that I would blend all the pieces of who I actually am and I'd stop compartmentalizing myself. Like I was a, a, a record shop, you know, needing to sell to a bunch of different people because that's what I learned to do from labels. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And the response was so overwhelmingly amazing from people all over the world who did not have my same experience, but they could empathize and relate mm -hmm. to the humanity in my song. I teach a lot of Japanese students um, music. And um, one of my students, she said, you know, I have a translator. She said, I don't even speak English. I don't even know what you were saying, but the frequency of your voice, it made me cry and it made me remember something about my childhood. That's so deep. Yeah, resonance. You know what I'm saying? And that's so much bigger than identity, than language, than my feelings. It's so much bigger than that on a human level. On a, The earth has a resonant frequency, you know? So on a human level, you connected with my resonant frequency. You felt this vibration that was informed by my emotion, informed by my lineage, my ancestors, by, you know, my connection to, to all of my spirit guys. Like you felt that on some level. Yeah. And yeah. that's what that's what drew you to me, you know, because in that moment I was sitting in my authenticity about the spirit that I am having a human experience. Forget the flesh. What is this anyway? This body suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is this? Like the vehicle. Slip out of this. Slip out of my body and and and, and hear my spirit and and I, and I'm so grateful because that's how that's the only way I really want to live. And I wasn't yeah. able to do that. Imagine me trying to have this conversation with a record label that just wants to know how many units are you going to sell? How many spins? How much money are you going to make us? I don't want to. My, my Muna, I don't care about your resonant frequency. I want to <laughs> know. Are you going to get butts dancing and, and see, you know, and I can't have those conversations because I don't know. And I'm, I've been grateful and blessed that. I don't plan these things out and we still sell out tours. Yeah. That has been my greatest marketing strategy. Anytime I have planned it any other kind of way, it did not have yield this kind of result. When I've sat down and said, okay, I'm going to make a record for the clubs and one for the streets and one for the lovers. And I try to put this thing together. It don't resonate because it's not, it's not honest. And if you don't have a million dollar machine forcing it down people's throats, it's not going to work. But when I sit back and I say, well, this is my authentic truth. I'm sitting in this as raw and as real and ugly and pretty and whatever. I'm working on me. And in the process, you get to work on you because you see your reflection in me. And I'm going to give it to you like I got it. And I hope you like it. And then we sell our shows. <laughs> and then we just hit a million streams. I have not paid for any radio promo, any no, no promotion. I've paid for no promotion. It's what you've, what's naturally come to you kind of through your work. Yes. When I'm not trying to figure out what people want and appease people and, and when I'm not trying to make it and get on and, and present myself in a way that you'll feel is valuable. Nah, I'm not doing that. I can't, I can't, it's too much work for me. It's stressful. You know, I can, what I'm doing, I'm working on myself. I'm having conversations with myself in song. And if that resonates with you, then I'm the humble love. I'm so grateful, <laughs> you know? Do you think that that empowerment, because that's what it is, right? It's, it's, it's an enlightened empowerment of like, I'm going to stay within myself and I will have faith that what, comes, what, what should come to me will come to me. Do you think that's a privilege? Because as much as I, like on my personal journey, I've, I've felt very much the same. Like I'm going to be freelance. I'm going to work with who I feel connected to and I'm going to do the work that, I feel is empowering and important, but that's because I don't have bills to pay necessarily. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. Do you think that that 
is, yeah, like a privilege to be in that space of freedom. You know, I'm not sure because I know it's different everywhere depending on where your resources are. But at the same time, I am a single mom. I had a child very early. I'm, I was born in a, a, a war-torn, crack-infested, you know, city of Baltimore, one of the murder capitals of the world. You know, my father was in and out of prison my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, still very close. But if you've ever loved someone who's been to jail, you do that time with them, you know. So I don't feel like I've had a lot of privileges besides the spiritual foundation my mother built for me. It has empowered me throughout my whole entire life where I walk like I know I'm different. I know I deserve this. Abundance is mine, right? These are things she raised me with. The natural state of all things is abundance. Go count the, go count the blades of grass. Go count the trees. If God is abundant, why should I not be? His eye is on the sparrow, so I know he watches me. And my both my, my parents and my grandparents already converted to Islam, but they still would teach me all these gospel songs, right? I sing because I'm happy. And I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. And that's the type of stuff she would just say when I would be worried about school or this, because I couldn't even afford to go to college. Like nobody was, nobody could afford or help me going to college. So I started a band instead. But when I would just be stressed about certain things that I didn't have the opportunity to have, she would just say, baby, God's eye is on a sparrow. Why would you think he's not watching you? You know? And so there are other people, friends I had at the time who had more money than me and more opportunity than me who have not ended up in a better position than me. On some level, yes, living in America provides a certain amount of accessibility. But at the same time, there is such a huge disparity between haves and have nots in America. And I do believe that mindset really, really is key and being able to push through the hard times. Cause like I told you, I've, I've been homeless before. I have like a, you know, I had an infant homeless with an infant at one point. So I've definitely gone through from the bottom. I've seen the bottom of the bottom and the top of the top. And I met somewhere in the middle where I felt at peace, but, um, it's my spiritual foundation to me it wasn't any it was no resources i can think of besides my mother instilling a spirituality and a base in me where i knew you know you ever read that book um the alchemist yeah i love it <laughs> yeah i was at dave Chappelle's block party so i ended up performing there and i wasn't supposed to be there but Lauren Hill was going to be there and I really wanted to meet her. I was a big fan. You know, I'd written down all of her songs as a child and practiced her, her raps in the mirror. And I said, man, this is going to be my first opportunity to meet Lauren Hill. If you, if you notice, I have a picture right there because I've opened for her many, many times after that. But this will be my first time meeting her. And so I was going to sneak into this place. Not sneak. They, they knew I was coming, but I was coming there to meet her. And she didn't come until like really late. So all, everybody else rehearsed first. So it's like... Kanye was there and Common and The Roots and Jill Scott, Erica Badu, Big Daddy Kane, Coogee Rap, Cool Herc, Dave Chappelle, just a bunch of people. So I'm just, I'm reading this book, The Alchemists. I'm sitting in the waiting area. I'm watching their, their performances. And in the book, it talks about your personal legend and how you have to just show up and be in the right place and time for your personal legend, right? So in the book, the boy is like taking this, this voyage and he's not sure what's going to happen. And he's going through all of this stuff to find what his personal legend is. So I'm reading a book and I'm saying to myself, this is my personal legend. I'm living in my personal legend. I'm supposed to be here. All of these people that are here, I've written their songs down as a child. You know, when, when I mean, I end up touring with Common, but 
when I first knew who Common was, I was 10 years old. And I was writing down his rap lyrics, trying to understand his rhyme flow and how he how he did things. You know, I'm, I'm an intellectual. So. Yeah, dissection. <laughs> I'm, I'm dissecting everything. And I'm sitting there like, whoa, I'm sitting here in my childhood notebook has come to life. Mm. And I'm looking at all the people whose raps I wrote down. Black Star was there. I love Black Star, Cody Chestnut. And I'm just kind of like geeking on the inside, but I'm trying to look really calm because in my mind, I was a teenager. So in my mind, grownups are really, really serious. So if I wanted to look more grown up, I had to look very serious. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, so they end up putting me out and saying everybody who's not on stage has to get out. And I was like, no, Lauren Hill hasn't gotten here yet. And so I'm in the cab driving, going back to the hotel thinking like, this can't be it. I'm supposed to be living. This is my personal legend. And then a friend of mine who was singing, Martin Luther, he was singing background for The Roots. He called me and says, um, you know the group Dead Prez? I said, yeah, I love them. He said, they're here and their singer didn't show up. Do you know any of their songs? I said, I know all their songs. He said, could you come back and sing the choruses on their songs? I was like, yes, I knew my personal legend was here. So I get the cab to turn around and I go back and I go into rehearse with them and do, you know, the songs they asked me to do. And then as I'm walking out, Lauren Hill is walking in. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to me, that was just like alignment. It was alignment because I was following my destiny and my purpose. I showed up as I was just open to the moment and like, let me just go with the flow. Anyway, I just feel like that has been the story of my life. How does that distill into your writing? Because, you know, it feels like the performance is so spiritual for you. And that moment of expression is, is really like that alignment with, with everything. But how do you lead up to that? I like to let my writing come. I don't like to force songs, which is why like, I don't really like writing for like publishing companies and things for artists, you know, cause I, I just don't like to force it. it. To me, it is a very spiritual process. The best songs I've ever written are the ones that I didn't write. They just came through me and I notated what was, what I was receiving. So as a teacher, what do you tell your students in terms of songwriting? So as a teacher, because I have the foundation already, so I start with what is a chorus, what is a verse, you know, what is the purpose of these things? Simplify it. What is the emotion that you want your audience to experience when they're listening back to you? You know, um, and we go over literary devices. What are literary devices we can utilize? So because I have all those things already in my mind, then I can now I can sit from a spiritual place and let it pour, you know. But if it's your first time writing a song, then you have to get the foundation, you know. The sub, the chorus is the main idea. The verses are your supporting details. The bridge is your conclusion. Uh, this is how you count bars. This is uh, the rhyme pattern. This is the rhyme scheme. This is, you know, so I teach them all those things, but those are things are, I'm, they're so second nature to me that. Um, I mean, even for me as a writer, like I realize that only when I let go to and, and surrender to the flow, does it actually really feel authentic and, and genuine. But before that, it would happen eventually, but it was just so tortured. And then I would, by the time I got to a place, I was just, it was like right before deadline, super stressed. So, I mean, it feels like such a dance, right? Between having the intellect and then a little uh, analytical skill to know that this is what's expected of the craft, but then surrendering to it and allowing it to come naturally. And it's also, it's so, subjective thing ever and someone may, be, may say that's not my cup of tea and it's fine it just means that it's not for them you know like you're not you're not gonna be everyone's cup of tea you're not gonna make everyone elated you know and that you have to be okay with that too um 
I think a lot of my writing is very experience based. So I'm not going to speak to every experience, you know, I hope to speak to the humanity in you that feels very universal, but it's also very personal. And for you in 2017, I mean, you put out the song, Say My Name, which is so beautiful. And I love the fact that it feels so gospel and then it has rap and it really kind of brings together the things in African-American heritage that that we constantly are exposed to, but we forget that it, again, a healing practice, you know? How was that process for you? Because it was a really painful time for black women all over the world to see, you know, the violation, to see the hurt. How did it feel when you were writing this song, when you, when you finally recorded it, and when, you know, you put it out for, for the mothers of the movement? Yeah, I needed to get it, I needed to record it. <laughs> Cause I couldn't keep those feelings inside of me. And I workshopped the song for a while. Like I wrote it and I was like, it's almost there, but it's something missing. It's almost like when you cooking and you smell the soup and you're like, mm, it's yeah. Like it's hold on. What is it missing? And then you add that one ingredient. It's like, yeah, that feels right. That feels, you know, and that's how I was workshopping the song. I would perform at different places, many different renditions of it as I was getting it to the final version that you hear on Black Girls Rock, um, on the Black Girls Rock Awards for the Mothers of the Movement. Um, but it was like a healing, like every time I performed it, it's like the pain almost felt like it calcified in my throat. It just felt like a brick. And the more I was able to sing through it, it like it started to break up, getting looser, getting watery. I think when people hear the song and they cry, to me, that's also them loosing that calcified matter <laughs> that is oppression. Cause it's-, it's oh, Embodied trauma. Yes, there have been times when I have left America and I've been in very, very peaceful places and I've just cried like, wow, you don't even realize how stressful being a black woman is until you go somewhere where it's not vilified like that. And yeah, and then it's like, I just remember sitting and crying like, ow, that hurt. I didn't even realize it hurt because I've had, I've been fighting so long. I've had my armor on. It's just become my natural way of being. And that's not how I, that's not my natural state of being. I'm a gentle soul. I'm a flower. And it's, it's stressful uh, having to be that all the time. Like, I just want to relax. I want to just, I want to be like water. Yeah, actually, I wrote a song about that too. <laughs> it says, one day when it's all over, I'm, I'm going to be like water. I'm going to swim inside of the raindrops. I'm going to drift like wood by the riverside. I just want to be like, be like water. Be like water. Be like water. But that, that was like the feeling of like my whole body just cried. Like <laughs> you don't even know what you're holding in, you know, until you ever get the opportunity to let it out. And then you realize it's not even yours. Like sometimes you're holding stuff from your grandmothers. No, and I think that as, uh, you know, I think black women were always sort of carrying the community on our backs. And we feel like if we don't, then we're kind of useless or we have no value. And or if we don't, no one else is gonna do it. <laughs> like, so so nobody nobody wants to, okay, fine. I'll yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. But how did you feel when you saw, you know, with the second wave of you know, Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, how did it feel for you, you know, for us to be sort of back where we started in a way? I mean, obviously police killings continued from, like continued even after the establishment of the Black Lives Matter movement. But 
How do we keep hope alive when we continue to see the same violence over and over again, you know? And you see it not just with African-Americans, but with Native Americans, like all the, you know, Native American women that go missing every year. And I mean, at what point do we just, how can we keep on going if it doesn't change? Because we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice but to keep on going. And there is a change that's coming and it's bigger than any political party. There's a spiritual shift that's coming that no one will be able to stop. And the best thing we can do is spiritually to get in alignment and get ready for it. Yeah. Be like water. It's coming. <laughs> and what's next for you? Well, if Rona let me be great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm recording two albums right now, one with Salam Remy, one with um, DJ Dummy, and I'm also, well, I'm also gonna have a third album that's like an acapella project. Uh, so we have a lot of music that's coming out. I'm, God willing, I'll be finishing my book this year. And, you know, I have an um, online music education program called The Mooniversity Studies, and we teach singing, songwriting, emceeing, music business education, independent music business education, branding. Uh, so I'm looking to you know, continue to grow that. We're doing a whole course for homeschoolers because there's so many homeschoolers this year due to the pandemic. So I have a, a course for, for young homeschoolers to really understand independent music business and how to build their own empire, you know, from, from start to finish. Um, and then we'll see what next year holds. Like if they let us get back on the road, I'm gonna be back on the road. <laughs> and what, where do you, what's the end game? You know, I feel like since you were a kid, you were, you're a very strategic thinker. And, and what, what is your long-term plan? You know, when I go to speak to schools, to talk to little girls about becoming an entrepreneurs, about their self-value, self-love, they don't listen unless they go to my Instagram and realize I have a blue check. And then my words are so much more valuable. <laughs> so the work that I do to expand my reach and my impact is really important for me right now because I want to be in a position where when I'm giving, when I'm mentoring, that they can see it in action. They're like, okay, I see the path that you took. This is a viable option. A lot of young artists will not choose to do music that is conscious, you know, positive because they don't see how it makes money. You know, they can't see the economic outcome. So I really want to create a pathway for young people, like an entire program from start to finish where they can see you can be positive and productive and progressive and still be able to take care of yourself. Um, so that's kind of like what I'm working on um, right now. A lot of my music is like on the border between, you know, just soul and like self-help, you know. Um, and then going forward, I mean, I definitely plan to build the university studies out to like a physical school. That's like artist development, a record label portion. Um, and a you know a business blueprint for young people and hopefully franchise it like a Montessori theme because I've homeschooled my own son as well so I understand the academic portion of, of what that looks like to homeschool so I just want to enable other parents you know and other youth to be able to um, yeah just be self sufficient have control over their content their intellectual property and and have the option the choice to be progressive to not feel like it's you know, the myth of the, what do they call it? The um, Struggling artists, starving artists. Starving artists. Yeah, we want to get rid of that myth. 
we want to it's not necessary you don't have to starve to do art yeah and what do you want your legacy to be what do you want um to people what do you want people to associate your name with you know when you're when you're long gone i want to help us get free i want them to give my tombstone say she was one of the best to ever do it she was a freedom fighter a liberator you know she inspired generations to come to be their best self their highest self you know she brought people back to the one Wow, speaking to Maimuna was a master class in self-trust. What I took from the conversation was that staying true to ourselves on our individual journey is the key to unlocking our limitless potential. I'm looking forward to seeing what she does next and how she continues to transcend expectations of who she is and what she should bring to the world. Be sure to keep an eye for the show's program notes. We'll have links to our performances and music and watch out for an all new episode in two weeks time. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at soul.dxp and at yusra and ba. You're listening to Soul Radio. Okay.